Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plotcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. Every Thursday this month, we are dropping a brand new episode of Season 3 of Douglas Wilson's talk show, Man Rampant. You can find it exclusively on the Canon app, so head to your app store of choice and subscribe. Additionally, Season 1 of Man Rampant is now free on the Canon app. So if you download it, let's say you haven't made the decision to subscribe yet, you can watch Man Rampant Season 1 for free. It's unlocked in the app, so you can download it and watch to your heart's content. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 188. My name is Douglas Wilson. It's uh, good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. This is podcast episode 188. So I want to talk uh, today a little bit about Joe Biden and the problem of Potemkin villages. Well, what do I mean by that? The name Potemkin village, there's debate about whether this actually happened or if it happened, to what extent it happened. There was a guy named Potemkin who uh, was one-time uh, lover of Catherine II, I think it was, of Russia. And he needed to impress her. And so she was sailing down the river one time. And so he had sort of collapsible villages that he could put up along the banks. So after her vessel passed and she saw the village along the banks, he could break the village down and haul it down, <laughs> haul it downstream ahead of her and set it up again so that she could be impressed at these villages. So Potemkin villages are basically facades that are set up to look like the real thing. And it's, it's the kind of thing where, let's say there's a Westerners visiting Soviet, uh, the Soviet un Union, and they want to be given the tour. And so they're given a tour and they are basically taken to a, their equivalent of a Hollywood set, you know, like a fake village or a fake factory or a fake something. And uh, this is the, the process of the Potemkin village. This is uh, deceiving people through some sort of elaborate ruse, okay? So, Joe Biden, there's a Potemkin village thing going on. It is abundantly clear that Joe Biden has, um, is losing his grip. It would not be uh, fair to say that he's lost a step. He's lost multiple steps. If you watch uh, Joe Biden, clips of Joe Biden 20 years ago, you know, he, there would be things you could find where he was just, he was a gaff machine. He's always been a gaff machine. But he, in his earlier days, he was glib and, and he could put sentences together and he could, and at the end of the day, he, if you were talking about economics or some foolish policy, it, it would not make sense at the end of the day. When you examined everything, it wouldn't make sense. But there are things that he's saying now that don't make sense at the front end. You've got examples of various word salads that come out, and it's not, oh, I disagree with that, or I think that policy is wrongheaded. It's, man, is he all there? Is, and the answer would appear to be no, he's not. So, uh, who's, <laughs> who's running the show? A short time ago, he had his first press conference. He went a long time without 
having a press conference. And then when he held the press conference, he was he had a picture book with him of who the reporters were and note cards and all kinds of props. And so the question would be, who's propping him up? Where are these um, facades coming from? Who's making, who's the president? Who's actually the president? Because it's pretty plain that the arduous and demanding job of actually being the president is something that he's not up to. Now, I would differ with Obama's policies as much as I do with Biden's, but when Obama was president, there was no question but that he was the president. So, when Obama was president, he was the president, and I differ with him. And I differ with Biden's policies as much as I did with Obama's, but it's very plain that he's not the decision maker. He's not the decisive leader behind the scenes. He's being stage managed. He's being propped up. And all the accoutrements of POTUS, all the accoutrements of being the president are there, you know, press conference flags, Air Force One, you know, all of those things. But that's the Potemkin village part. So the thing that we should be uh, interested in finding out, and we should be praying that God would reveal to us, since it would be nice to know who's, who's running the show, is it Dr. Jill? Is it Biden's wife? Is it the vice president, Kamala Harris? Is she running the show? Or is it, as I suspect, Obama himself? If Biden is being simply used as a as sort of a talking mannequin that's being managed and directed and pointed in certain ways, and then anybody who challenges his mental competence is shouted down as a hater, well, you know, it's, this is something that seems pretty obvious. And it seems to me unlikely, unlikely in the extreme that Biden will make it through his um, first term without being removed or at some point, I think it's going to become glaringly obvious that he's not fit to hold the position, ethics aside, policies aside, just on uh, sheer mental competence issues. So we continue on with episode 188 in the podcast. We continue to major in martiology, and we come to the word deleazzo, D-E-L-E-A-D-Z-O, deleazzo. This word refers to a certain malevolent aspect of temptation, and it's rendered in different ways in the New Testament. All right? In James 1.14, it says, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Our word is the one that lies beneath the translation enticed. So, deleazzo is the word that refers to enticement. When a man's lust beckons him, lures him on, this is the word that would describe it. In 2 Peter, the apostle is describing the foul behavior of false teachers. In the course of his description of them, he says this, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sinning, beguiling, there we go, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. That's 2 Peter 2.14. There, the word is rendered as beguiling. Our word deleazzo is the one underneath beguiling. Notice that the victims of this treatment are kind of sitting ducks. They are unstable souls to begin with, and so the false teachers had no real difficulty in discovering which souls to begin working on. So the false teacher comes into the church or into the community, and just like spies spying out the land, false teachers 
identify which individuals are vulnerable. It's like coyotes identifying which members of the herd of sheep are on the edges or straying or lame or not able to run as quickly. And the instrument that they use is beguiling them. And a few verses down, the same word is translated with a different English word, 2 Peter 2.18, which is just four verses down. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. So, here, the same word, deleazzo, is translated as allure. So, we have entice, we have beguiling, and we have alluring. The devil knows how to manipulate and flash shiny objects. So, continuing on with uh, our podcast, episode 188, the book I want to review this go-round is a book by James White, and it's one he wrote some time ago. It's called The Forgotten Trinity. So, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. If you are a conservative, believing Christian in a good, healthy, orthodox Christian community, you belong to a good church, the chances are pretty good that you affirm the Trinity, you believe in the Trinity, you sing hymns that reference the Trinity, but you've probably not sat through a series of sermons on the Trinity. It's not a controversial topic generally, unless you're in sort of a apologetics ministry or you're ministering to people in cults, or, you know, the Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. Unless you're involved in that sort of niche market, you are probably not called upon to explain or defend or articulate what exactly you believe when you say you believe in the Trinity. This book is a really good, really fine introduction to the subject. And it's not a matter of how do I defend the Trinity when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, because that probably doesn't happen that often. James White begins the book by saying that he loves the Trinity, and he's saying something other than he loves the doctrine of the Trinity, which he also does. But our God is triune, and he is the object of our worship. He is the object of our devotion. We should not seek to understand the Trinity in the sense of being able to do the math, because we are always going to be finite pea brains, and God is always going to be infinite. And so, we cannot do the math on the Trinity. We cannot show our work. But we can carefully articulate why we affirm what we affirm from the scriptures. And that's what this book does. It's a very fine, exegetically based defense of the Trinity. Basically, if you're a Bible reader and you come to Christ and you start reading your Bible over and over and over, you're going to encounter certain truths that press themselves on you, whether or not the word Trinity is used. For example, an orthodox explanation of the Trinity says this, Christians are monotheists. We believe in one God. We don't believe in one God and in three gods, because that'd be a violation of the law of non-contradiction. We're not saying that one equals three. We're not saying one is one and one is three and three is one, which would be contradictory and absurd. 
what we're saying is that there is one God, and this God is existent in three persons. And we say there are three persons, not one person. We say there's one God, not three gods. And we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and there is only one God. And the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. And what White does throughout this book, he just goes through and shows you passage after passage where these things are exegetically necessary. Right? It's exegetically necessary. So, for example, is the Holy Spirit a person? Well, yes, he's a person. Paul says in Ephesians, not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, you don't grieve the force of electricity, you grieve a person. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead because they lied not to men, but to God, and then it says they lied to the Spirit. So they lied to the Spirit and they lied to God. That means the Spirit is God. White spends a good deal of time on the deity of Jesus Christ, and he also talks about the implications of that for the incarnation and so on. So I would encourage you to get and read this book, but don't set the bar at the wrong place. James White is not attempting to do all the math. He is attempting to show you why those who are confronted with the reality that visited our world in Christ are confronted with the deity of this incarnate one. But the deity of Christ has certain implications because Israel was drilled all through the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the Jews were fiercely monotheistic. And when the early Christians accepted the deity of Christ, they did not abandon that monotheism. They held on to that monotheism just as fiercely as the Jews had done. And yet, something else was going on. And we have to account for that, but we account for it by explaining carefully what we are saying. We are not trying to base our faith on our ability to explain the details of it. So, the last thing I'll say is this. Many years ago, I was talking with a woman in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and she said regarding the Trinity that she refused to believe in a God that she could not understand. That was her bottom line. I refuse to believe in a God that I can't understand. And she was saying that the Trinity is incomprehensible, and therefore I don't believe in that God. Rather than trying to argue with her about that, I asked her very simply, do you believe that God is infinite? And she said, yes, I do. And I said, could you please explain that to me? Of course, human beings, finite human beings, can't explain infinity any more than we can explain the triunity of the triune God. We can't explain either one. We can't show the math. If you're explaining infinity, you can't, you can't show the math, right? So, we submit to the scriptures as they are given to us. And if you want someone to hold your hand and walk you through all the relevant passages, or almost all of them, this book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White, is for you. Mm-hmm.